Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Solid Ground Church, where every week we share messages recorded during our weekly gatherings in Lewis, Delaware. If you have questions or if we can be of any help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Wow, that was good. If we haven't met, my name is Drew, and I get the privilege to serve as one of the elders here at uh, Solid Ground. And uh, if you don't know how things work here, there's a team, uh, there's a leadership team with Bert and Josh and Bob and um, a bunch of other ministry leaders and the elders, and uh, it's just really cool to come alongside such a great group of hardworking, amazing people who sacrifice and do a lot behind the scenes to make what happens here at Solid Ground go. So it's just really cool to be a part of that. And uh, I believe that uh, God is in the midst of writing a story for our church. And uh, interestingly enough, we're going to talk a little bit about stories today. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Al Mohler. He's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he talks about the elements of a good story. He says this, he says, literary critics often point out that trouble lies at the heart of a good story. He says this, he says, something needs to happen. Someone needs rescue. A problem needs to be solved. A battle must be fought. The story has power because it tells us how the trouble was resolved, how the child was saved, how the battle was won. We read books, watch movies, largely in order to lose ourselves in someone else's story. We're going to be in Acts 12. You want to start turning towards Acts 12. We're going to get through this whole chapter today. It's kind of going to be this cram everything in. But Acts 12 has the elements of a great story. So I'm going to give a little bit of a paraphrase of what happens in, the, in this chapter. So we start off with King Herod. He kills uh, James. And seeing how happy it made the Jews, he then imprisons Peter with this plan to kill Peter. But he doesn't want to do it during the Passover because that would make everybody mad. And he's there to appease the Jews, not to get them upset. As a result, the church prays fervently for Peter. And then we see everybody's familiar with this middle part of the story of Acts 12 with this miraculous prison escape. An angel appears and shackles fall off. Roman soldiers continue sleeping. Iron gates open on their own, and the church's prayers are answered. Peter shows up, and he surprises the church. Herod is furious, has the soldiers killed, and then he's filled with pride. As a result, God kills Herod, right? And at the end of the story, the church grows. So that's, there's Acts chapter 12. Let's pray. Have a great day. (laughs) If only, right? So I'm going to do this in the context of kind of a playbill. You ever been to the theater and you get your playbill and you open up the playbill and it gives you the acts, there's acts one, act two, act three, and it also gives you a little bit of a history or uh, an understanding of each of the actors. So in playbill style, I'm just going to go over each of the actors in this story. We're going to start off with Herod. This is Herod Agrippa, okay? So there's lots of Herods. We hear Herod A couple of times through um, Scripture, the first time we we come across a Herod is Herod the Great. 
This Herod, Herod Agrippa, is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who had the decree when Jesus was born and said, hey, we want to find this Jesus. There's another Herod. This is Herod Agrippa's uncle. Okay, I'm get crazy with all this. But he's the, um, Herod Agrippa is the nephew of Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist and was the one that Jesus stood before. So you have three different Herods, grandpa, uncle, and then this Herod. All right. He is the king of this client state of Rome. He's in Jerusalem, and uh, he's, he's really just a politician. He's there to appease the Jews. He's kind of goes along with Jewish belief, not because of conviction, but because it, it, it serves him well. Uh, he's motivated by these zealous Pharisees who sought to suppress the growing Christian church. James, next one in the story, brother of John, fisherman called by Jesus. Uh, he walked with Jesus for three years. He was one of the three. Interestingly enough, he was there at the transfiguration. Um, he was there at the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's referred to by Jesus as one of the sons of thunder. He has this 100% heartfelt belief that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's not afraid to proclaim it. Part of the reason why he's put to death. He's killed by Herod in Jerusalem. Um, the Jews, in Jerusalem, the Jews had completely turned against the Christian church. In verses 1 and 2, we see this. Uh, this is Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Next actor in our playbill is Peter, also called by Jesus, also one of the three, uh, which puts him close by James. Interesting part of this story. We'll get to that in just a moment. He was also one of the three. Um, uh, he witnessed the transfiguration, death, and resurrection, just like, like James. And Peter has this, this role that plays plays out with the church. In verses three to five, follow along. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out, of the, out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right, the next, I'm going to call this actor, but it's really a broader group of people. This is the church, okay? So we're going to count the church as, a, as one of the actors in the play here. You're going to see how the Christian church plays a role in this story, a very key role, but I wouldn't say that the church is the number one uh, primary actor in this. They pray, they support, they share the gospel, and they're fulfilling the purpose that God has for them. Verse 5, we see this, but earnest prayer for him was made by the church. And looking ahead to verse 12, where many were gathered together and were praying. You'll see that in just a moment. And then the last quote-unquote actor in the play is God himself. He is central to the story. He is the, the main character in the story. We don't hear as much about God in it, but he is the one. He, he's the author of the story. But he's the central character. 
his actions, he sends an angel. He opens the gate. The, the shackles fall off. Uh, he answers the prayers of the church. But the purpose that gets played out at the end, as we'll see, is that the word of God increased and multiplied. And it's all because of what God is doing through all of the elements of the story. Follow along with me in verse, verses 6 to 11. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains and sentries before the door, and before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So those are the actors. We've got a, a list of actors. We're going to talk a little bit about the setting, and then we'll get into Act 1. The setting is this. We're roughly 10 years after the stoning of, season, of, of Stephen. Um, roughly, depending on how you time things, 8 to 11 years after the ascension of Jesus. So just so you know, part of that is, is the church has been growing in this time, Part of that is, is Peter and James and the other apostles are building relationships during that time. So that's part of what's happening. This is in the city of Jerusalem. It's at the Passover. What do you think is happening in Jerusalem during the Passover? Big celebration. Lots of people in town. Lots of things happening. Hustle, bustle. The city is full. Rome is in power. The Jewish people... So the Jewish people have these traditions, right? Uh, at the Passover, they go through all these things. Imagine for us, 4th of July. What are some of the traditions that we celebrate for 4th of July? Fireworks and picnics and parades, right? What if somebody came along and said, we're not going to do that anymore? Think some people in America would be mad if we... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. How long have we been celebrating 4th of July? Two, roughly 200 years, Right. Now, the way we celebrate that has probably changed a couple times over the 200 years. Imagine the Jewish tradition that had been happening for over a 1,000 years in Jerusalem based on religion and has been the same for all that time. And then a group of people comes along and says, no, it's different now. There's this Jesus guy, and, and everything changes. How do you think those people are going to react to that? Well, we find out, right? They start killing those people. That's what happens. So that's the setting. Act one in the story. Um, I'm going to call this Herod lays uh, violent hands on the, on the apostles. So Herod is motivated by politics. Herod, um, he's, he really is, is seeking his own best interest. He's got to worry about what the Romans think. He's got to worry about the, what the Jews think. And um, so... He thinks it's in the best interest of what's happening to kill James. You think about the significance of that. And you think, all right, 
if God is the author of this story and God is writing the story and God is um, all-powerful and, and, and he's uh, omniscient and he, and he knows all things and he's sovereign, why, why does James have to die? Like, that's a reasonable question, right? Why does James have to die? Not only does he die, but he dies by the sword as a traitor, not as a thief, not as um, a criminal, but as a traitor in a military way by a sword. He's beheaded. And I think about, you know, the purpose of, of James's death, and I won't pretend to know all of what God thinks in this, but we know that the death has a purpose. We know that Jesus's death had a purpose, right? Jesus dies on the cross, and the forgiveness of sins comes because of that. In 2 Timothy 2.12, we see, it says, and if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. But if we renounce him, he will also renounce us. So there's this joint suffering that happens between believers and Jesus, right, that we see happen with, with James. Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. All right, God, what are you doing here? How's this work out? Stand by, we'll get there. So the, the rest of Act 1, we see Herod imprisons Peter with the intent to kill Peter. Like, he's ready to kill Peter, but he says, wait a minute. Um, first of all, he realizes after killing James, what do the people in the city do? They celebrate. They're tickled to death that James is dead. They're, ha they're having a party, and, and Herod realizes, wait a minute. I just killed this guy. If I kill another one, they're going to like me even more. I mean, that's kind of a sick thing, way to think of things, but that's, that's what's happening, and that's what motivates Herod. So Peter goes to jail, but he didn't want to do it. First of all, the law said don't do it during the Passover, but it was also, it wasn't very expedient for him to do it during the Passover, so he's waiting. So Peter's in jail, that's what puts him there. Think about Peter for a second. Okay, Peter's put in jail for doing what? preaching Christ, right? And being friends with James. He's been working side by side with James his entire life, right? They were fishermen. Jesus calls them at the same time. They walk side by side with Jesus for three years. Jesus and the three, Peter and James were part of that. Just take a moment and think about what's going through Peter's heart and mind and not only were they with Jesus for three years, it's the next 10 years that they're busy sharing the gospel, building churches, and, and working together for 10 years. One, his best friend, one of his best friends, is martyred, is killed. Imagine what's going on in Peter's heart. Peter's got to be devastated, personally, hurt, broken, fearful. I can't even imagine what's going on. So then Peter escapes, and part of, I don't include what happens to the soldiers. The, what happens to the soldiers after Peter escapes? What does Herod do to them? He's not very happy with those soldiers. All of them are put to death. So this murderous plot that happens in Acts 1, Act 1, all these things happen. But here's what happens. The death of James does what to the church? Where, where do they go after James is killed? They go into hiding, right? Because they're, they're fearful, and they should be. But what do they do while they're in hiding? They're praying. They are praying fervently 
for, for Peter and for the church at this time. So now we're going to act two. We're going to pick up in verses 12 to 17. So if you want to follow with me, I'm going to be in Acts 12, starting in verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So, so God calls the church to his purpose. And we sang a couple songs that, you know, I love how God works that, you know, when, when Mark and them put the songs together, um, I had no idea what songs we were singing. He had no idea what I was preaching on. But you talk about the turmoil and the things that happen in each of our own lives, but also collectively as a church. Prayer was, was central to the purpose of the church. And they may have been discouraged. And it's interesting, you hear, what's their response when Peter shows? They're praying and praying and no doubt trusting that God's working. And when Rhoda comes and says, hey, Peter's here, do they say, oh man, God answered our prayer? Or do they say, man, he's not here. <laughs> In no way, right? We do the same thing. We go to God with anticipation, and then when God answers it, do we realize, like, all right, God, how are you at work and what's happening, right? So one of the things, Peter, as he's in prison, what's he doing in prison? Wringing his hands, pacing back and forth. He can't pace, he's got soldiers on either side, but what's Peter doing? He wasn't praying. He was sleeping. His best friend was murdered, and he's going to the same fate in a day or two I don't know about you, but I'm not sleeping that I'm going to be wringing my hands. Peter had a piece about what God was doing. Kind of interesting. In the midst of all this going on, he's in jail. His best friend's killed. And he's sleeping away. Sleeping hard to the point where the angel had to poke him to wake him up. God gives him this peace. And um, when Peter gets back, he reports to, to the people who are praying Interestingly enough, it was harder for him to get into the prayer meeting than it was for him to get out of jail. <laughs> and so God goes to great lengths to secure the mission of the church. He dramatically frees Peter. And uh, we see that at the end, there's this phrase, the word of God increased and multiplied. Um, there's this twofold mission. One of the things I, you know, Jesus can come back and do whatever Jesus needs to do to save people. He can do that on his own. He can come back, he can knock door to door in Lewis, say, hey, it's me, I'm here, put your faith in me, and, and you'll have eternal life. But that's not how God works. God has this, this twofold mission where he's at work and he uses his church, us, you and me collectively, to fulfill his mission. And that's what he's doing here in Acts, all through Acts, all through Scripture, but today, even today, the church has a purpose and a mission that he's playing out. 
So we're going to jump to Acts 3, and then we'll come back to that purpose and, and how that, what does that mean for us. So Act, Act 3 of Acts 12, God wins, and we see how the purpose of the church plays out. Verses 23 and 24. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So a little context here, because I'm kind of jumping through so we didn't have to read every verse of, of Acts 12. Um, Herod, uh, after he kills the soldiers, he comes out and uh, he basically says, hey, worship me, um, pay attention to me. Uh, I want, he basically tries to steal God's glory. And, and even in the context of a Jewish worshiper, he still says, bow down to me as the, as the king, don't worry about God, you worship me. And it's interesting, God didn't kill Herod because he killed James, right? Herod kills James, God gives him a pass. God didn't kill Herod for falsely imprisoning Peter, right? He puts Peter in jail, God gives him a pass. God did not kill Herod for killing innocent soldiers, right? Gives him a pass. God kills Herod because Herod attempts to steal God's glory. See, God's glory, God is the central character of everything, right? And look, guys, I'm guilty of this too. I'm putting my glory before other things. I want to put myself first. But the sin that winds up getting Herod killed is his pride and putting himself, thinking of himself more highly than he ought and trying to steal God's glory. Acts act. Act 3 of Acts 12 is, is this, the word of God increased and multiplied as a result of everything that happens. And I'm condensing a lot of stuff into a 30-minute deal here. Um, after the death of James, the word of God grew. For the church, the more it was afflicted, the more it multiplied, like Israel in Egypt. The courage and comfort of the martyrs and God's owning them did more to invite people to Christianity than their sufferings did to deter them from it. I know that is antithetical. I know that doesn't make sense. But as a result of James's death and what happens with Peter, the church grows. It drives the church to prayer. It, it does something in us. God uses suffering to cause us to really dig in for the mission. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But after the death of Herod, the word of God gained ground. So Herod does all this stuff thinking that it's gonna be to his benefit and yet God uses it and the church grows. So I kind of wanna shift gears. How does this three-act play with these characters, what does it have to do with us today and the purpose of the church? And if you ask scholars and you, you look up and do a Google search of what is the purpose of the church, you're going to get a lot of answers, but they boil down to this. Ministry to God, ministry to believers, and ministry to the world. So ministry to God is worship. Part of the purpose of the church is for us to worship God. Part of the purpose of the church is to minister to one another, to help us to grow so that we can be part of what God's doing in the church and then the third part is ministry to the world. as evangelism and mercy. Sharing the good news of who Christ is and showing mercy to the world around us. Now, just like in the first century, there are lots of challenges to the church, not only in America today, but around the globe. 
The church around the globe faces so many challenges. First, in the U.S., this is, goes back to 2019, 2020, but these numbers haven't changed much. 4,500 churches close each year in the U.S. You guys know that? 4,500 churches. Now, 3,000 churches will start or be planted each year, but there's a net loss of 1,500 churches. What does that mean for the church in America today? There's a decline. There's a battle. There's a fight. People are being drawn away by other things. People are not coming to the church for a variety of reasons. Um, around the globe, persecution, threats, politics, hatred, power struggles, all from the outside. Um, churches, pastors, and believers in faraway lands and not so faraway lands are facing incredible persecution. Places like China and Iran and the Middle East. Um, I may have shared this with you guys before, but I've been to Cuba, and the persecution of the church in Cuba is real. I got to meet pastors who have either been in jail before I met them or have been in jail since I've met them. And jail in Cuba isn't like it is here. If you don't have somebody on the outside to bring you food and the things that you need, you starve. Those things are real for the church in other places. Um, those are external threats. Internal threats, insecurity, past hurts, struggles from the inside. You guys know church life. Church life can be tough. Living with other believers, living with anybody can be really hard. Um, churches, pastors, and believers are facing those kinds of things. Latest research says that roughly 40% of pastors are ready to, are contemplating leaving the ministry because it's hard. Ministry in churches is really tough. And with all things considered, you can understand why. But with all, those staggering numbers of people around us who claim that they don't have a relationship, here's the thing, with all of that, there's a staggering number of people around us here in Sussex County, Delaware, who don't have a relationship with Christ. You look at the numbers, at best, it's 20% of people around us have a relationship with Christ. If we believe what we sing about, what we read about in the Bible, what we believe about who Jesus is, then that should compel us to love and care for each other and the 80% of the people around us who don't have a relationship with Christ. And if we believe what we believe about what the Bible says, we'll spend eternity apart from God in hell. So what does that mean for us? Based on the scripture, number one, I think it, I think it begs us to pray. We can pray individually. We can pray together. Uh, I know Bert and Josh and, and Bob, their heart is that we would be a praying church. There's a group of people that, that meet on Monday mornings that pray. Um, so if you have a prayer request or there's something that's on your mind, there's the little cards. Fill them out. Go online. Fill out the prayer request. If you have a desire to be part of that prayer ministry, reach out to Bob. He'd be glad to, to get you connected to that prayer ministry. But let's be a praying church. Let's pray for those concerns. Is there any shortage of concerns for things that are going on around us right now? We should be praying. Let's pray. Let's pray hard. I think about the church in Cuba when I was there. I remember walking into a church that was built for 800 people, but there were 3,000 people in the room. And when we walked in, it was during this collective group prayer time, and there was a hum. It sounded like a freight train a hum of the prayers of 3,000 people. Now in Cuba, the church prays 
because they, their lives absolutely depend on it. And I, I know for some, that's what our prayer life looks like. But for some, are we praying like our collective lives depend on it? Are we praying like Peter's in jail and we just saw one of our close friends beheaded? That's, I, th- I really think that's what prayer needs to begin to look like. And I'm going to encourage and challenge and just ask each one of us to consider what it looks like to pray. But it also means getting to work. What does Peter do afterwards? What do Paul and the other apostles do after James is killed and Peter's in prison? They go back to preaching the gospel. They go out into the, the cities and the countries around and they're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Remember, these guys walked side by side. They were eyewitnesses to all of these things. Nothing was going to stop them. Nothing. And if we believe what we believe about what the Bible teaches, we should do, be doing the same thing. So equipping is a big part of that. Um, our church does an essentials. If you're, you're new to the church, uh, you're a new believer, get connected. Pastor Bob, Pastor Josh, Pastor Bert, myself, others, we will be glad to get you connected in. Small groups, if you're not part of a small group, please let me encourage you. I have been in small groups with, with a number of people in this room, and uh, it's really impactful. It's really cool to come together and pray in those groups and, and share the concerns and grow and, and learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, the next thing I'm going to encourage you, July 9th, is this information. Our ch- this is a hinge point for this church. God's doing something. Talk about writing a story this hinge point comes in September where we're going to have the opportunity to see this room grow and really begin to reach lost people in Lewis and really see more people impacted by the truth of the gospel. And there's, there's a lot of work that comes with going to a school and uh, setting up and taking down and doing all these things. Let me encourage you to pray about that. Come to the information night. Think about how God might use you to be part of one of the different teams. There's lots of, lots of opportunities. Again, I go back to the church in Cuba. These people had nothing. I mean, I literally walked into a pastor's house and he showed me his cupboards. And it's not even like a bachelor pad where there's like ketchup and mustard. There was nothing. Like the cupboards were bare. And he and his wife would pray, Lord, we, tr- we know you love us and you know we love you. Will you provide for us today? And day by day, God would provide for them. And they would go out into the community every Saturday Groups would go. They would get on a packed bus, drive into the countryside in Cuba. They would leave at six in the morning. And every mile, they would drop some people off and they would walk up into the countryside with their Bibles sharing the gospel. And it would be 6 a.m. to Saturday till midnight on Saturday. They just gave themselves to share the gospel. Is that what we're going to be about as a church here? Are we going to trust that the Lord is at work in our midst? He accomplishes this amazing thing in the midst of suffering and trial and challenge and difficulty. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of Christ. Philippians 1.21, Paul says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What he's saying is if I live, I get to serve him. If I die, I get to be with him. Is that our mindset? Are we all in as a church? Are we all in for Lewis and Delaware? And we're not limited to that. We can go to 
outside of Delaware to the ends of the earth as a church. What does that mean for solid ground? What does that mean for you? What does it mean for each of us in, in this room? What is God calling us to? There's a story of a, a Navy chef and uh, his daughter comes to him and he says, and she says, Dad, I, I'm really struggling. She's probably college age. And uh, she says, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I'm really frustrated. I, I'm really at this point where I, I, I kind of want to give up. So the Navy chef, he takes three pots of water and he boils the water. In the first pot, he puts potatoes. In the second pot, he puts eggs. And in the third pot, he puts coffee. And his daughter's, much like my daughter, looks at me like, what's he doing now, right? And uh, they come to a boil. He drains the water out. He puts each of the three items in front of her. And the first is a potato. What happens to the potato after being boiled? It gets soft. What happens to the egg after it's boiled? It gets hard, right? What happens to the coffee? <laughs> exactly. So each of the three things responds differently to the boiling water, right? And the point of the story is, is how are we going to respond to the pressures and challenges individually as a church? Do you think there's going to be challenges with us going to a new location? Do you think there's going to be uh, issues that come up? Are there going to be people who are opposed to it? Absolutely. Absolutely, it's going to come. Are we each individually going to face different trials and challenges as we collectively try to, to do what we believe God's calling us to do in Lewis? Absolutely. But at the end, God is at work. He is writing a story. He's a writing, writing a story for this church. He's writing a story for his people. He's writing a story for you. And just like Al Mohler says, you know, the, there's... There's a cool thing that happens. The battle's got to be fought. But at the end of the day, the battle is won. God's written a much bigger story. See, he created the world and everything was good. Sin enters the world and it becomes corrupted. But he knows that's going to happen. So he comes up with a solution, which is the cross. And as a result of putting our faith in what happens at the cross and putting our faith in Christ, there's going to be this renewal, this restoration that happens. And I can't wait to be part of that. God's at work. You see, this crazy story of Acts 12 is really playing out for us today. And I can't wait to see what God does in the midst of that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your story. Thank you for the big story of redemption that comes through faith in Christ. And thank you for the lessons that we can learn from what happens here with James and Peter and the early church. And God, I just ask that you move um, here at Solid Ground, and not just at Solid Ground, but in, in churches around Delaware, churches throughout America, and churches around the globe. We know that many churches are, are facing incredible challenges that we don't even understand. God, strengthen your church, multiply your church, use your church for great and amazing things that we can't even imagine. And just like... Uh, the believers couldn't believe that Peter was at the door. When, when hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people come to faith as a result of what you're doing in your churches around us, that we would just be blown away. So blow us away, God. You be glorified. You be the center of our stories, the story of our churches, 
and the story of history. We love you in Jesus' name.